This is Tim Trelaw. This is David J. Howe. I'm Peter Purvis. I am Sadie Miller. This is Lauren Cornelius. Larry, it's Fraser. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world and beyond, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. I'm Larry Van Mersberg and your host, and I've been collecting for 42 years. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast on the Direction Point Podcast Network. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Lisa Bowerman, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. We don't have a special adjective this time around because we've got a special episode this time around. And this time it's a recording of our panel at Chicago TARDIS 2023, which was a discussion of nearly 60 years off target. Specifically, we were talking about the times that target writers went off script and decided to change the stories that they were adapting, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. The reason why we called it nearly 60 years is because even though this is the 60th anniversary of the show, the target books have not been around for 60 years, and for that matter, novelizations have not been around for 60 years. They've only been around technically for 59. I was joined at this panel by Larry Van Mersbergen of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, and unfortunately, you're not going to be able to hear him as well as me, and you're not going to be able to hear the audience members all that well at all, and that is because, unfortunately, we only had the one microphone for the podcast, and for some reason it picked up my voice perfectly fine, but it didn't pick up the output from Larry's voice all that well, to say nothing of the audience members. So I have tried my best to equalize the audio, but I would suggest listening to this one using headphones and listening extremely carefully. Next time we will be discussing An Unearthly Child by Taryn Stix, in order to celebrate the 60th anniversary of that particular story, and hopefully to piss Steph Coburn off. And we'll talk more about that in our next episode. For now, enjoy the panel, and enjoy your travels. Okay, good afternoon everyone, I probably don't even need this. My name's Tony Whit. I am the host of the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. And with me today is a man who needs no introduction, but he'll introduce himself, so. I'm Larry Van Roosbergen, I'm the host of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, the official collecting expert for Chicago TARDIS, and the owner of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast. 
Yes, of which our podcast is a proud member, so thank you for that. Thank you. All right, this panel is going to be a little different. I actually have a presentation, but what we'll do is go through this and then uh, get your recollections of the times that you have cracked open a Target book, gotten to a scene and thought, wait a minute, when did that happen? I don't remember it going like that, and why on earth did this writer decide to do what they did? From the very first target novelization, from the very first novelization, writers have been going off target, as it were. They've gone off script, and a few writers, such as uh, Terrence Dix, who probably wrote most of the books on this particular slide, almost never veer away from what's on screen. They're very much script to page, before we had home video, the way to watch a Doctor Who that you had not ever seen before is to read the book. And if it's Terrence Sticks, it's going to be exactly as it is. But there are other writers, quite often they're going to be the original screenwriters for the particular story, but not always. Take the opportunity to write the story that they wanted to write because there wasn't the budget to produce it. And most of the time the results are a vast improvement Sometimes they're not. So what we're going to do is do a small sampling of writers who have gone off target, as it were, in three categories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In the spirit of Chicago TARDIS, unlike our podcast, we're gonna be a little more positive, so we're gonna spend most of our time on the good, but we will talk about the bad and the ugly because those are the most fun books to read and discuss. All right, so we're going to start off with the good, obviously, and the first one is going to be Doctor Who in an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks, which is its actual title, no matter what anyone tells you. It's not Doctor Who and the Daleks. It is Doctor Who in an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks from 1965, and Larry has a copy of what I believe is the first edition this is, here, this right? Is the, this is the first edition by Muller Press in 1964. Um, and it was subsequently also published in paperback by Armada Books. And believe it or not, in the US of A in 1967, it came out here, but nobody bought it. Yes. And it has been reprinted, um, that first edition's been done as a facsimile edition. And I just got Carolyn Ford to sign mine. So it's kind of nice having Susan sign the book that she first appeared in. And I say first appeared in because. For the longest time, people thought that this was the first Doctor Who story, and it's not, but it is the first Doctor Who book. And here we've got a scene from that book that never happened on screen and is just gorgeous, so I'm just going to read it aloud to you. The first thing I saw was a long metal pipe running up to the roof around which four or five Daleks were standing. That's the first way we know it's not the TV version because they couldn't have afforded four or five Daleks. I could see that they were supervising the tipping of some liquid from a metal container into an oblong box affair that was placed inside the pipe and reached by a glass door. The second thing I saw was a glass Dalek. He was resting on a kind of dais and his casing was totally made of glass. Inside I could see the same sort of repulsive creature that the doctor and I had taken out of the machine and wrapped in the cloak. The Dalek looked totally evil, like, unlike any other Dalek, sitting in a tiny seat with two squat legs not quite reaching the floor. Oh, it's got a little kid's chair. 
in there. The head was large and I shuddered at the inhuman bumps where the ears and nose would normally be in the ghastly slit for a mouth. One shriveled little arm moved about restlessly and the dark green skin listened with the same oily substance that had revolted me before. And the entire book is like this. It's lovely. There is a novelization of the Peter Cushing that has been written by someone who goes by the pseudonym of Alan Smithy. It's better than that name implies, but this is the better novelization of the movie for sure, if you're going for that, but it has a completely different introduction to our main characters. All right, another instance of the good, and you're gonna notice something. A lot of these good examples come from the Hartnell era. And the reason for that is because in most cases, the original writers were asked back to do that instead of Terrence Dix, much to Dick's chagrin. But in some cases, other established writers got to do it, and in this case, it was Ian Martyr. And Ian Martyr was working on this book and had pretty much completed it when he died. And Nigel Robinson did the coda, which is why the coda is so weird. The entire book is weird, but the coda is even weirder. It, is, it does not end the way the TV show does. This is probably my favorite sequence from The Rescue because Ian Martyr has obviously been writing this while he's uh, listening to the radio. You'll see what I mean here in a second. Mr. I'm not going to do a heart voice. I'm sorry. Mr. Bennett, do you spell your name with one T or two? He inquired calmly, the doctor. What possible significance could that have for you? The doctor shrugged and edged very slowly round towards the torch. Oh, I just wondered whether you were related to the great Bennett, the cosmological engineer, he said casually, trying to hook the torch toward him with his toe. You have heard of the Bennett Oscillator, of course. Bennett hesitated, uncertain how to react to this. No? Oh, well, perhaps it hasn't been invented yet, the doctor said, dragging the torch nearer. A beautifully simple but highly effective device. You're quite mad, Bennett breathed, starting to advance slowly around the altar. The doctor jackknifed at the waist, picked up the torch, and straightened up again. Switching on the torch, he was relieved to find that it was still functioning. He flashed the powerful beam into Bennett's eyes. It works, he cried, or rather it will when it has been invented, on the principle of photon inertia using a small array of multiply vectored lasers, he babbled on, backing away towards the huge pillars leading to the entrance. I do hope I'm not blinding you with science, Mr. Bennett. You see what he did there. Aw. This is also, and I'm going to go unfamily friendly for just a second. Nigel Robinson said that part of the difficulty with editing Ian Martyr was he kept trying to put sexual puns in. There is a long sequence about fellatio that is missing from the first chapter. And this is down to Nigel Robinson, thankfully, taking that out because it would not have worked. But this is one of the better rewritten bits from that story. Um, when was that published? Uh, the Rescue, I believe, let's see, I have it here, here, 1987. All right, the next one is again Hartnell. As I said, it's gonna be kind of Hartnell heavy when we get to the good. And I have to say, it was difficult trying to choose a Donald Cotton book to take a passage from because they are all amazing. They are adaptations of stories that are sometimes middling. In the case of The Gunfighters, it's not the favorite of a lot of people. But 
They are amazing because one, they go from a uh, mostly first person point of view. And in this case, the first person point of view is in that era. And if you ever listen to the audiobook, Shane Rimmer does an amazing job doing the accent, which I'm not going to do as I'm reading this aloud because it would be hideously embarrassing. He's talking about Last Chance Saloon. Perhaps a word here about this hostelry, famed though it may be in the lower class of obituary. Well, it weren't no plush line sleep easy with a cactus court cat gut ensemble, that's for sure. And there weren't no picture of your genial host and his lady on the occasion of their silver wedding behind the bar neither. On account your host, by the name of Charlie, weren't a mite genial, and his ladies came and went with monotonous irregularity. No, what was there behind the bar was a shot-up oil painting of a fat blonde in her birthday ring. Sitting on a cloud she was, being molested by a bunch of tearaway cherubs who looked as if they'd been up several nights round a stud game and passing the nectar pretty free at that. It was that kind of place. Why, well, I declare, there used to be a song about it. Now, how did it go? And then he quotes the song, which I am not going to sing here. That's the, da, 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 yeah, exactly. And then when we get to the end of it, got the picture, have you? Right. So let's get back to the Clantons who have just about disentangled themselves from the busted swing doors by now and spat out the fresh air they'd unavoidably inhaled on the way over. And the entire thing is like this, and it's just lovely. Larry, I can't remember if that one was ever done as a hardback. Uh, it was. Uh, it was done on hardcover. This is a 1985 print. One thing that was interesting, what's, one, one more thing that's interesting is I happen to own in my collection the proof of the gunfighters that Ooh. Donald Cotton got. And one of the notes in there was that that song that you quoted mm. was actually circled and crossed out with a question mark, and he crossed <laughs> it out because he wanted it in the book. So, But the editor at the time uh, did not want it in there. So it, it was an interesting piece to have in my collection, but to look through it and go, oh, he did not change much. Yeah. And uh, that it was a, but the, yeah, you could get this as a hardback or a uh, or a paperback. So the, these copies are not too hard to find. Mm -hmm. And Cotton is one of those writers who changes just about everything when he writes a story and generally for the better. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, um, I'm not in a little um, I was wondering, it's just a, a quick curious question. Oh, wow. Uh, the second most deviated. It's probably not going to be in this presentation. I would say the, the Massacre. The Massacre, Remembrance of the Daleks, too, has quite a few. Oh, yeah. I've got, That's I've true. got two and a half pages of, of things that were not the same as the screen. Yeah, and yeah. But The Massacre is completely different because John Lucarotti's uh, original script was changed by the script editor against his will. And when he was asked in the 1980s to do the novelization, he said, okay, I'm going to write the story that I wanted to write. And that's what we got, which is why that story is completely different than what we got in the televised version. Well, the Five Doctors, you'll find, is also off, but that's because the push to publication meant that Terrence Dix had to work from his working copy before the edited had things happen for screen. That's why it's a lot different. There's some different things happening in the book. That was what was originally intended to happen before budgets cut in, but it was a real big push to have that book out. Um, in fact, it came out like almost two weeks before, before, yeah. before Five Doctors aired. Mm -hmm. I've heard some things about, I can't remember 
Yes. Oh, yes. 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 Um, I was wondering, is, um, if you're the makers to the ones you're mentioning, is it kind of up there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anything by Donald Cotton is up here for sure. He is probably one of my favorite writers from the Hardville Target era. Absolutely. Another one, obviously, is Malcolm Hulk, who doesn't do a lot of changes to his own stories, but when he does, they are absolutely phenomenal. Now, Colony in Space, when we discussed it on the podcast, ended up being one of those books that one of our panelists, Allison, says that she still thinks about now. And that is saying something, because usually when we do these podcasts, Allison puts the book right out of her head and cannot remember the title. She remembers this one. And in fact, I think Lear's got two copies of it, including a first edition, is that right? Yeah, this is the first edition from 1974. It's the wonderful Chris Achilleos uh, artwork on the front. Uh, five years later, they reprinted it with the cover you see up here, and I want to say uh, that Jeff Koomans did this cover. Uh, this is the hardcover uh, version. Because of a writer's strike that happened, uh, they could not issue new hardcover books, so they repackaged Target books as hardcover, literally pasting the cover from the paperback to the hardboard uh, for several titles, including this one and the Keys of Marinus and Sea Devils. So they just, you know, initially it was... Uh, and initially, it was supposed to come out as the fourth hardcover by Alan Wingate, but they never got to do it. It was just a shame. Day of the Daleks was the other one. So, a lot of changes in this one. For one thing, even though we see the native off to the left of the master there, in basically the way they appear on screen, that's not the way they appear on the page. They are utterly naked on the page, which obviously they couldn't get away with tea time on the BBC which is fine. But there's also this lovely prologue, and I adore this part of the book. It is two Time Lords talking about the Master and the Doctor just before they realize the Master has stolen the files about the Doomsday weapon. The TARDIS stolen by the Doctor has a serious defect, two defects to be correct. Then how is he able to get away with it? Oh, it flew all right, said the old keeper. It could fly through time and space, through matter and antimatter, which is news to me. But he can't direct it. So he's lost in time and space, asked the untime lord? Hardly. The old keeper was silent for a moment and seemed almost to drop off to sleep. The untime lord had become used to this and waited patiently. Suddenly, the old keeper's failing energies returned. Still, even if he cannot control it, others sometimes can. I don't understand, said the young Time Lord. What others? Who? Who? No, who can't control it? Not always. <laughs> oh, that is so subtle. Uh, the old keeper dropped his voice, and there was a faint smile on his 2,000 years old lips. But others sometimes can. He adds one of those Doctor Who jokes, but it's such a brilliant one. And an otherwise, well, the whole thing is brilliant. The entire, anything by Malcolm Hulk yeah. is brilliant. Yes? So this book right here, this story in fact, was my absolute first introduction to Dr. Who at all. Oh, really? Yeah, and I loved it. And my buddy had, he had the books when I was a kid. It was the Pinnacle version. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And instantly fell in love with it. Now, I've never read or owned the, the Target version. Is there a difference in the way that the two are? Yes. Yes, there are. Uh, the Pinnacle editions, and that's an interesting story for another 
full podcast, full uh, presentation, but in, in a nutshell, the Pinnacle editions were completely re-edited and Americanized. So all the British terminology and spelling was taken out of it. So for instance, the trunk became, the boot became a trunk, the torch became a flashlight, and they tried to insert it more as an American uh, language. So that's the big difference between the two. Um, the, the other big thing about this book is that because it was published as the fourth target book, it introduces Joe and the master as if they first appeared in this story. Yeah. So that's you know, basically for the readers of the show, of the books, they didn't want to confuse anybody, so they had to write new introductions, things like that. So this would be the first book that Joe Grant and the master appear in, even though it's not the first story they appear in. Claws of Axos was done later. Terror of the Autons was done much, much later. So that's just how, how it worked out. I'm not sure why they did the books that way. They didn't do them in story order, um, rights for issue, but that's why they did it that way. But that's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> yes, I'm oh, sorry. They kind of like the Americanized terminology. Does that go for all of the pinnacles? All 10 books, yes. And there were more planned, but the license was pulled after Seeds of Doom. Which is probably a good thing, uh, because Seeds of Doom was originally on the bad list for reasons that I don't want to go into, but yeah, it was originally on there. But you're absolutely right. This is a brilliant book to start with, and I would give this to anybody you're trying to introduce to the Pertwee era, because it gives us a good introduction to Joe as well, probably one of the best. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, uh, two things. One. In this passage, is the Keeper the Keeper of the Matrix? Is that what is it called here? Possibly. Yes. Uh, they don't call him the Keeper of the Matrix, but he is the Keeper of, uh, what do they call it in the book? So I have a feeling that's exactly what it is. And the second thing, if somebody were to experience Doctor Who from story <coughs> one to, you know, to survive, um, all the way through using the target authorizations, how would that pan out? Would they understand, um, would there be things that they didn't quite get or wouldn't get without watching the show? Oh yeah, in fact, there are a few things they'd get before they really need to get. Um, that's exactly what we do on the podcast. Anyway, we've been doing it that, that way. And my two co-panelists are kind of familiar with the show, but mostly with the new series. So they've been reading them in story order, and every once in a while they'll come upon something and say, wait a minute, what, where is that happening? And I say, ah, it, yeah, that, that, that's later. In fact, there's a really bad one coming up, so yes. remind me when we get to King's Demons, and I'll tell you the story behind that one, because, oh my God, it I is terrible. Think, I think I know where you're going. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, Okay. The next one on the good list, it comes from our friend Trey Corte, and I'd forgotten about it. This is actually one of those books that I read before I saw on TV. And so when I actually saw the TV version of Frontios, I was so disappointed because this book is so good. And uh, it came out in 1990. That's not right. 84. 84. 84. Why does it say 19? Oh, I know why. I know, I never mind. The next <laughs> book is 1990, but that's yeah. 1984. 1984. And I would have gotten that book from um, John Fitton Books. Probably. You remember that? Because yeah. they used to do a subscription service for the Target novelizations. You sent them. Hello, fellow time travelers. Tony Whit from the future here. And what you're about to hear is me pulling numbers out of my ass 
because I honestly cannot remember how much the subscription service to John Fitton Books was. In a moment, I'm going to say that it was £60 per year, but there's no way my family in the mid-80s could have afforded that. They could have afforded $60, and that's probably more likely to have been the actual cost of getting new Target books about once every month or two. So everything you're about to hear, please ignore, because most of it is just wrong. Thank you. I believe it was 60 pounds, which is a huge amount of money. And you would get about a year's worth of Target novelizations as they were being printed, which is just great. I have a feeling it was that high because of shipping. Yeah. International yeah. shipping is very high. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. How, as you said, the good. Now, I take it this is a seventh doctor convention? No, this is fifth, fifth doctor. Fifth doctor. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. um, so the episode would have come out. Yes. Yes. And you said you said you were disappointed when you saw the four part and in comparison to the uh, the televised story and I'll, I'll show you why, because okay. I'm about to give you a uh, passage from this and then tell you what we saw on screen and you'll see the problem. But let me take your question first. I'm mainly interested because I find, I find that um, I gravitate more towards original fiction. Mm. You know, books from Virgin, books from BBC Books. Um, and so the Target stuff is just interesting because I know so little about it. Right. What would you say is the, if you had like three Target books for a newbie to, to jump it out? Mm. I'd say what you've seen so far, yeah. definitely. Uh, those three, because those shot immediately to my head. Daleks and, what was the second one? Uh, gunfighters, and definitely The Rescue. Anything on this list. Anything, especially Remembrance of the Daleks, which we're going to be getting to in a minute. Yeah, it's much more like a new adventure than it is a uh, televised story. Yeah, it's, it's got the other, the and all that Yeah, oh yeah, it's brilliant. Ah, okay. Then I'm probably, there's no way my family paid that much. I'm thinking I may have the uh, amount wrong, but I remember being an exorbitant amount. It was a year's worth. Is that one every month? Uh, well, that was 1984. Do you remember how many paperbacks came out that year? It, it certainly wasn't 12. I think it was seven or eight. Yeah, I, I, I'm remembering seven because I know it was the same year I got Marco Polo. Okay, so this is the passage from the book, something that did not happen on screen, or at least not in the same way. In front of them, the scraping, thudding sound of the excavator echoed louder and louder in the tunnel. They stared in horror at the machine that emerged into the light. It was a repellent sight, a huge and hideous assembly of parts of human bodies, shaped something in the form of a giant tractator. White bones tipped with metal cutters scraped against the rock while rotting hands polished the surface smooth. Through illuminated windows in the body, Tegan glimpsed more mechanically gesticulating human arms and legs in an advanced state of decay. It was a machine built from the dead, but not just the dead. 
in a hollowed out area at the front of the machine between the forward cutters that spun to the left and to right, crouched a shape that was recognizably human. Tendrils of many colors connected the head into the machine, and as it emerged into the light, they saw the figure was alive, a living mind enslaved to drive the machine, living but in a fearfully wasted state. Tegan recognized the face from the portrait she had seen in the medical shelter and the stateroom. It was Captain Revere. It's not like that on screen. It is disgusting in the book. In fact, there's an even more disgusting bit. The Gravis can't speak English, obviously, in the book. He has a translating machine. The translating machine is a severed human head. It, I'm sorry, what? In the book. Uh, it's a severed human head. Yes. Yeah, yes. and it is, yeah, it is not for the faint of heart. It is not for the weak of stomach. I think changes like that are kind of brilliant, though, because you can't get away with that on screen, and you wouldn't want to, because tea time, obviously, hello. But when you read that, and then you go to the televised version, and you see the BBC golf cart that they put this guy on, it's kind of sad by comparison. And then we get to Ben Aronovich and Remembrance of the Daleks in 1990, which Larry has a copy of here. First and only printing, 1990, $3.95 in the United States. Mm -hmm. Very pretty penny and definitely worth all of it because his description of the special weapons Dalek is, well, special. The Dalek was insane. Radiation had altered the structure of its mind and made it mad. The mark of its insanity was that of all Daleks of the great race of Daleks, it had a name. It was called the Abomination. They had given it another name. In the Imperial Battle Roster, it was listed as the Special Weapons Dalek. The Emperor had to create its creation. They had ripped it from its birthing cradle, aware, like all Daleks. They had taken it and placed it in its shell and given it functions. But the shell they gave it was wrong, twisted, a single-function monstrosity, a vast weapon, and the power plant to drive it. They led it to the firing range and had it destroy to order. As it fired, the first backwash of radiation sleeted through its fragile body. Every time it fought, the radiation from its pulse gun saturated its life support chamber. Chromosomes altered shape, its vestigial pituitary gland became active, and hormones chased unfettered through its bloodstream. It became changed, twisted, and insane. It committed the blasphemy of knowing who it was. And it goes on for another two pages like that. And it's kind of brilliant because on screen, you see the special weapons Dalek for just long enough to be impressed by it, and it blows something to bits, like five Daleks at once, and then it's gone. Here, it has a backstory. He gave a backstory to the, uh, to the freaking special weapons Dalek which is Ben Aronovich all over the place. Now, Battlefield uh, kind of tries to do the same thing, but it doesn't capture lightning in the bottle the same way that this does. Yeah. This is $2 million away from being a Cronenberg movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and Front House definitely was a Cronenberg movie. Yeah, on the page anyway. All right, now we get to the bad. And when I say bad, I don't mean that the books are necessarily bad or the writers are necessarily bad. What I mean is they've gone off script, but they've done something that doesn't necessarily improve the story. It doesn't ruin the story in the same way that the ugly books do, but it does make the story a little less uh, 
palatable, shall we say, and one of these is going to be uh, Bill Strutton's novelization of Doctor Who and the Zarbi, and it is indeed Doctor Who. He is referred to as Doctor Who throughout the entire book, which is annoying, but that's 1965, right? Is that the first edition? This is the first edition from 1965, with the cover, and then the 73, it was the second Target book ever published. 1973, uh, 25p in the UK back in the day. Which is still a pretty penny for if you're a school kid in 1965. And this price, I can't even, uh, uh, 12, 12 slash 6, which is 12, what, 12 shillings and 6 12 shillings and 6, six pence. Six yeah. Yeah. Not so even that's, on decimal system yet. Yeah, I can't even do the calculation <laughs> for those. Anyway, that's not the worst part of the book. No, the worst part of the book is what it does with the characters because the doctor on screen, even by this point, is you know a little hard to take. He's incredibly hard to take care of. Doctor Who turned to share Ian's inspection of the time calculator scale. His face was grave. He said nothing but turned slowly back to fix his gaze on the cluster of instruments immediately in front of him on the big control panel. Behind him, the door of the dormitory section slid open and Barbara stepped into the control room, where she has no business being, apparently. She stopped at the sight of the bursting lights on the scanner at the harsh crackling. What's happening? There was a pause. Doctor Who turned to Barbara and hesitated. He smiled. Just a little um, interference, my dear, nothing unusual. Uh, Would you like to get us some coffee? But Barbara stood her ground. Something's wrong, isn't it? Nothing for you to worry about, Doctor Who said in his most soothing voice. And this is just before Ian says, have you made us breakfast yet? Yeah. And it gets better. But (laughs) yeah, that probably gives you an idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's fingers on a chalkboard. It really is. Yep, go ahead. Uh, it's worse in a lot of the original short stories and the annuals because instead of Doctor Who, like the title of the show, it's the R period. There's, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Uh, licensing. Yeah. yeah. Doctor Who spelled out is clearly licensed. That's why the films have to use DR period who. Yeah. 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 And, and the annuals too. Mm-hmm. And then also, this, this reminds me a lot of the several second Doctor Who. On TV right. that have extremely similar Oh yeah, oh yeah. The moon base being one, moon the base. most famous one, because Polly's sent off to get some coffee. Yeah, but um, unfortunately, <laughs> this is in print, which right. means you can go back and revisit it as much as you want to. Yes, I wouldn't suggest it though. I'm sorry. Go ahead, um, Corey. When William Russell read the audio books, didn't he change it to just say the Doctor? The script was edited, yes. I would love it if he did. I really would. I I hope he did. I wish he could have changed the rest of it. But unfortunately, (laughs) we got it word for word from that moment on. Eric Sayward. There's so much to say about Eric Sayward. We're we're not at Sayward yet in the podcast. In fact, we're doing Resurrection of the Daleks this year. We're doing the fan version, and we're doing this, um, this... The target version is luckily shorter and makes some changes. And in fact, I believe the passage I'm about to read to you is not in the target version. It is in the hardback. At least I hope not, because otherwise this is what we're going to get. Now, 
Stein on screen, if I remember correctly, never only ends up in the TARDIS briefly, and we never see him in the TARDIS. He just goes up to the Dalek ship in it. But Eric Sayward decides to describe what the inside of the TARDIS is like for five pages. And this is what we get. This is a plop in the middle of it. Should Stein be hungry, and he often was, he would have been spoiled for choice. The endless dishes of unsurpassed good cooking, both simple and elaborate, would have sated even his appetite. He would have been well advised to have the limited tasting menu that at least only amounted to some 33 dishes. If he were in a hurry, then the humble but very adequate Tardis Nut Roast Special would have satisfied his taste buds in a way that it didn't satisfy the taste buds of Perry, apparently. All the dishes were prepared by the unseen robot chef called Ubadoa. There is a robot chef on the TARDIS called Ubadoa. No, there is not. It was even suggested that there was a French bistro in the bowels of the TARDIS, but to the chagrin of anyone who tried to find it, the restaurant remained elusive. Bon appetit! The bon appetit is in the book book. in italics. It's so cringy. Yes. Now, you said this goes on for five pages. At least, yes. I find it kind of funny, but the fact that it goes on for five pages, there I'm like... Yeah. Well, it took time to work up to Uba, Yeah, exactly. This is like TV comic yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It is. And the strange thing about Eric Sayward is he could edit other people's scripts, but when you ask him to edit himself, no, 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 it doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, it's struck me because I've read Twin Dilemma as well, which he novelized. He does write in this kind of his, his prose is this sort of Todd Douglas Adams style. Yes. So this feels like somebody doing very bad Douglas Adams thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Well, Slip back. Yeah, yeah, slip back does the same thing. The Beastromatic. The Beastromatic. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to revisit Terrence Dudley on the ugly list, but this is simply bad. And the reason why it's simply bad is not the story. The story itself is actually pretty good. Terrence Dudley has this bad tendency, though, of uh, when he novelizes his two partners, he changes them into six partners. And he does that with Black Orchid, uh, with the cricket. There's about 20 to 25 pages just on the cricket match, yes. of which this scene comes. The overjoyed Marquess shot up to his full height like a jack-in-the-box. He's going to farm the bowling, he chortled. He's farming the bowling, squeaked Tegan. He's what? asked Nissa. Farming the bowling. Farming it? Could this be it, thought Nissa? The ducks? A duck farm? There was some mention of uh, ducks earlier. Yes, it means he's going to try to keep the other man, the one at the other end, from having to face the ball. The doctor's the better man, but he's the last man in. When either of them is out, the innings is over. What do you mean, out? asked the perplexed Nissa. If the ball hits the wicket, that's the three sticks. Or if it's caught before it hits the ground, or they could be stumped or run out or laid before wicket. Please, said Lissa, shutting her eyes and clenching her fists. Please don't go on. And she's not the only one. Yeah. And if you wanted to learn how to play the game, read this book. Because it is a how-to guide. It tells you exactly how to do it. Yes. The earlier reference was about somebody being out for a duck. So. That was it. Out for but, uh, I'd have to say... I really enjoyed Black Orchid. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's a great story. Oh, okay. Yeah, 
Well, agree to disagree. Okay. It, it, well, interesting story about that. Uh, one of our panelists, Allison, saw the cover and said, I, I think I'm going to duck out on this one based on the cover. And I can't say I blame her. I wish I could have too, but I'm the host, so I don't get to do that sort of thing. And also, Target refused to pay licensing for the, for the image of Peter Davison, mm -hmm. so this was an easy out. <laughs> well, the other difficulty there is that Peter Davison tended to be a little... He was very critical of all the art. Very vain about the way he looked on, on some the, of the pages. Were very good. Andrew Skilleter did a really nice job, and Peter rejected every one of them, which is why they did the photo covers for the first couple. Then Peter's agent said, hey, we want to be paid for those, so they stopped putting him on the cover entirely. Yeah. And as we all know, the photo covers for the Target range are just the most glorious and beautiful of all Target books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. No. Go ahead. <laughs> no. No. Just just the, the actor is not referenced in the book. That's the character, which they can do whatever they want with. Right. Yeah. Uh, the cover, though, like uh, for instance, you know the. They had to get permission for certain likenesses, but they tr they tried to do artwork. He didn't approve any of it, so they used photos. But at the time, there was no agreement that they had to pay for them. The agent found out later, hey, wait a minute, how many of these are you selling? You know, hey, we should get in on that. Well, the contracts are already been written, and they said no. So for instance, you know, we're gonna, we haven't gotten to this one yet, but there's no even doctor on the cover. Mm -hmm. King's Demons, just yeah. chameleon, which is not an actor. So we're good there. Yeah, same thing happened with the cover, uh, the original cover for the Twindle. Yeah. It was Colin Baker, but nobody told Colin Baker's agent about that. So that's why it got changed. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're they're in, um, absolutely. Uh, his his books, Illuminart, have them, and as well as some prints that you can buy. And for a while, you could actually buy a dust jacket of the original Twin Dilemma to fit over your hardcover. I think they're sold out, but he's making more. I have one in my collection. It's got the really nice picture of Colin on the front that he drew, but um, and unfortunately, they couldn't use it because Colin's agent said, "Nope, can't use that." Yeah. Colin himself would have been fine with it. Yeah, he yeah he's gone on record as saying, oh, I would have been fine with that. He say Colin has a new agent. Yeah. So. <laughs> now, this is where we get to the ugly, and I think there's only one on here, isn't there? Or did I? No, no. Of course, I did Pescaton, so I'll try to do this quickly. Here's the thing. As we know, the Pescatons is a record album, and it's a record album produced for kids, and it only has three actors in it. Uh, the book goes on for a bit longer. Pretty thick book. For, yes, for, for, for a novelization of a record album, and you get scenes like this. Zor's long tail swish back and forth slowly for the first time. The Pescaton civilization is the most advanced in the entire cosmos, and by the perfect way in which the creature spoke, the doctor believed it. Seriously. Our race is prepared for the great migration. Soon our machines will be ready to transport us. Machines? The doctor was stunned. You have machines that can travel through space. Before him now was a sight that stunned him and the rest of us. All around, for as far as the eye could see, were hundreds and hundreds of replica TARDIS telephone boxes, all the same color and bearing the same legends as the doctor. The only difference was that each TARDIS replica was at least four or five times bigger than the original. So not Trenzalore size, but 
you know, fairly close. The doctor immediately rushed from one replica to another, peering inside each of them, but the contents he found caused him to burst into wild laughter, for the interior of each TARDIS contained nothing more than a police telephone. You really expect your entire race to migrate from this planet in these things? Zor was not amused. You will help us, doctor. Don't be ridiculous. The doctor was unable to contain his laughter. What you've built there is a police telephone box. You wouldn't even get the thing off the ground. He stepped up to Zor, glared right up at the huge creature defiantly, and said, Just know this, my friend. There's only one TARDIS, and that's the way it will always be. Uh, doctor, I'd like a word about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, 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 all, there's, there's only one doctor's TARDIS. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But Victor Pemberton is... Uh, not all that versed on the show lore. At one point in the book, Sarah asks the doctor how old he is. It's like, she knows this. She's known this for a while. Was it a different number? Uh, no. Uh, he doesn't tell her. <laughs> it's a, that's the crazy thing, because Victor Pemberton doesn't know. I've yeah. always found it ironic, because he spent years basically begging Target to let him novelize it. If you listen to the original record, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a fun story. Yeah. Basically yeah. writing a second Doctor story for Tom Baker. Yes. But there's a lot of room where you sit there, and I remember listening to it for the first time, not long after I became a fan, going, I can see how you can make a book out of this. There's so much space for expansion. And then tracking the book down and reading it going, what did I just read? Right. Yeah. And it is a second Doctor story because at one point towards the end, the Doctor takes a flute out of his pocket and begins to play it. So, yeah. 22,000 of these were printed. Oh. It was one of the largest printed. $5 price tag for any That's 21,999 too many. Too many. That's why you can find these on eBay for about a buck. <laughs> yeah. I think I paid five bucks for my coffee. I'm sorry. At least you paid for the price. <laughs> If you, pay, if you pay more than cover price, you pay way too much. Yep. Get the record. It's yep. much easier. Or the, find the audio online. Much more palatable. That's much better. Yep. Now, the last one I have is Terrence Dudley again, but there's a story behind this. Because he wrote this before writing the novelization for Black Orchid. And so there is a reference to the master in Black Orchid. Oh, wait, it's the other way around, isn't it? Yeah, it's the other way around. Yeah. It's the other way around. It's the other way around. So <laughs> there's a reference to the master in the Black Orchid. And one of my uh, panelists said, wait a minute. Is he referring to Legopolis or Castrovalo? I was like, no. He's referring to a story we haven't read yet, which he had already written. And he, <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. The Doctor and Tegan's relationship in Black Orchid is not great, but it's, you know, better. For some reason, Terrence Dudley seemed to think that since Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant were sniping at each other constantly on screen, that's the way they should act on the page, even though the actors making this story were trying to tone that down by the time King's Demons came out, but you wouldn't know it from reading this. Are you saying King John was a good man? The doctor abandoned his pacing, remembering he was on dangerous ground. He came to the fire and lifted his coattail to warm his bottom. Aww. To err, after all, was human, but remembering the regal behavior of this morning, the doctor was finding his divinity a little strained. Every once in a while, Terrence Dudley does some lovely wordplay. He compromised. Don't take my word for it. You'll be able to judge for yourself, I hope. But there's little evidence that he was such a bad man. 
Tegan looked at her learned companion in wonderment. After this morning, she said scornfully, you've got to be kidding. I don't feel under any obligation to make jokes, the doctor said testily. Facts are facts. Tegan's feminine superficiality irritated him, but it was also a fact, he remembered, that London was at least 50 miles away and no mortal man could be in two places at once. I know what a fact is, Tegan was saying scornfully. That cruel behavior this morning was a fact. And, she waved a dogmatic finger, Magna Carta was a fact. The doctor gritted his teeth. By Gallifrey, this girl could be irritating. Yeah, and that's not even the worst of it, unfortunately. Oh my God, the angels are here to take us away. Good Lord. Not that we've been grinding. No, no, not at all. Yeah, obviously your mileage may vary in all of these. Some people find these very delightful. Others will find these changes really irritating. I think we've got about five minutes. Yeah. We can actually take uh, questions, recollections. Yeah. Okay. A really good one from the New Age that actually Sophie Aldridge, the audio book for, mm -hmm. Yes. That one was so good. Mm -hmm. I loved with how they um, kind of uh, expanded upon, I like it on her name, uh, the lead villain in the episode. And there's a wonderful scene at the very end yes. between the Doctor and Graham mm -hmm. where he asks her why she can't fix the witch hunts. Yeah. And it's such a gut punch, and I wish that had been. Yeah, unfortunately, that quality isn't across all books because I haven't heard very good things about The Waters of Mars by Phil Ford yet. Yeah, some people have told me that it's mediocre at best. John Peel went out of his way to say on Facebook that he didn't like it. I was like, okay. John Peel doesn't like it. Yeah, John and I don't always agree about certain things, but... <laughs> well, <laughs> were there any other books that you cracked open and you were like, oh my god, this is. I'm sorry, you also had a question. Would it be possible in the near future, maybe the far future, mm -hmm. for the BBC to collect the biggest changes that the books made to the stories, like extra scenes? that were put in the books that weren't in the original story and collect those for people like me, like the original stuff. Hmm. I'm not sure they would do it. We can't even get them to novelize all of the new series yet. Right. And I'd, I'd prefer they did that first because I'd really love to see some of the uh, new series writers doing what, say, uh, Rob Sherman did on Dalek. Yeah because some of those novels have been amazing. Even Rose was well improved on the page. And also uh, the 50th anniversary special. Yep. That book is astonishing. Yeah, some it's the, absolutely some great. Some of the early Target books, the BBC does not have rights to. Yeah. Um, the company that, the conglomerate that bought W.H. Allen and basically was trying to still owns those rights, which is why you haven't seen them re reprinted. Mm -hmm. Yes. Earlier to start your talk about the Really were a fan of Donald Patton books. Oh, yeah. yeah. I could not stand the Romans. Really? I'm so glad it was so short. Because <laughs> I couldn't, I it was a short book, out. yeah. I just, I couldn't, it was very hard to read. One of the hardest books I've Ah, so you didn't like the doctor throwing a lit match into the sewers of Rome and starting a fire? <laughs> the, way, the way it was written, I mean, when I, because I was trying to read them all in order. Mm -hmm. Myth makers. I like yes. I haven't got to Gunfighters yet, but I, I like Myth Makers. And 
and I'm coming up on it, I was, like, oh, I was kind of dreading it. And I, I heard that he writes a certain style, and everything, but it was just the Romans moments didn't really. <laughs> I'm wondering if that's because he didn't write the original script, did he? I don't think so. I think that may have been it. He's trying to bring his sensibility to a script he wasn't responsible for to begin with, so that may be it. And and you're right, the epistolary style he's writing in for that one, it can really drag a story down to some degree, but there's some lovely moments in that. And I adore Vicky coming into a room and saying, Vinny, Vinny, Vicky. Yeah. That is a lovely moment. Yes? Oh, it's not burnout at all. It's that the newer editors decided to ask the original writers because previous ones just let Terrence Dix do it because he was both writer and editor to some degree. Whereas when Nigel Robinson and other editors came in, they said, you know what? Some of these folks are still alive. Let's give them first dibs on it. And they took first dibs. And we got some brilliant books as a result, including the weird one that I didn't put up here, and I probably should have. The novelization of Galaxy 4 is a delight. It's not a delight on screen, but William Ems does something really quite good with that story, and it's really surprising. We've got time for one more. You covered it earlier, maybe it's not a darker thing, but now we have two versions of Oh, yes. The Fraser Hines book. Yeah, yeah, had to remind me. We're going to have to go back and revisit that damn thing I just, again. I just got a copy, but I haven't cracked it. I got the audio book, too. So We're doing know. these in story order. We did Evil of the Daleks years ago. Why? Ugh. It's a anyway. time travel revisit. <laughs> it really is. That being said, our next episode is going to be a revisit of An Unearthly Child because two of our panelists have not read that book before. So, if you are interested in our podcast and would like to continue your travels with us, here is a QR code that takes you directly to the SoundCloud page for the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. I would like to thank all of you for coming. I had no idea that this turnout was going to be this big, given what we're in competition with. So, thank you very much. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Thank you. Doctor Who Podcast Network.